This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes ideas in educational research easily understood. This week featuring Swedish podcast Bakom Bokhyllan, made by Stockholm University Library. I'm your host Cecilia Burman, and with me today as both guest and co-host is yours truly, Will Brem. How do you give space to academics to talk about their ideas, which maybe actually might even make their ideas a bit more accessible than sort of jargon-filled academic texts and sort of get behind the pages. In this special episode, we look at science communication. What impact does it have and why are we doing it? With us in the studio is also Gia Destuni, professor of hydrology and water resources and head of department of physical geography at Stockholm University. No, we are just going to write down the mathematics and that's it. Then everybody can understand. Yeah. <laughs> Now I, I have fully understood that even in the science papers, I need to tell a story. Will and Gia are working in two very different fields at different universities. But they are both interested in how research is being communicated to the general public and within the academic world. In this episode, we talk about sound and podcasting as a tool for the academic discussion and the challenges in changing people's behavior with knowledge. (laughs) So did I nail that presentation or what? You nailed it. Yes, it is a bit weird to be on the other side of this conversation, but thank you for stepping in and filling in just fine. Thank you. I I hope I will do it justice. (laughs) Um, This is actually Bakombokhyllan's first episode in English. Wow. But hopefully not the last. We'll see how this goes. (laughs) Uh, And for you who aren't fluent in Swedish, uh, Bakombokhyllan could be translated to Behind the Bookshelf. Uh, We are recording this episode in a podcast studio just a couple of stairs below the Stockholm University Library where I work. And with me today, like I said, is Gia and Will. How are you? Thank you. Fine. (laughs) Nice to be here. Yes, it's fantastic to be here. Sweden, Stockholm is such a beautiful place. Beautiful weather. The library is wonderful. I just met some students in the faculty or department of education. It's been a great day. So, Will, this is kind of an experiment for both of us. Uh, having our podcast doing this duet. (laughs) (laughs) And listeners of Fresh Ed probably know well who you are. Uh, But could you introduce yourself to Swedish or new listeners? Uh, Like what is your professional title and what do you do? Sure, yeah. So I am an associate professor of international and education development at the UCL Institute of Education. So I teach courses on education planning, economics, introduction to development, Um, I would say my field is sort of comparative education, and I specialize a lot in Southeast Asia. Um, But I also happen to run a podcast that I started in 2015 uh, and have been going strong ever since. It went from a hobby, making it out of my room in Tokyo, Japan, to doing it rather professionally with a team of about 20 people. We're incorporated as a nonprofit organization in the USA. We put out weekly shows. We put out shows in other languages. We put out narrative-based shows. We run graduate student fellowships to help graduate students make podcasts. So, we, you know, there's a lot that we do with Fresh Ed, and it's just such a 
privilege in a way to be able to combine my academic career with podcasting because as we'll talk about today, it's becoming a really important part of our academic space. Gia, can you tell us about your area of research, which is water and climate? Uh, what led you there? Well, I'm interested in um, so many things <laughs> when it comes to research, and I'm interested in both the natural world and societies and uh, So uh, water comes into every aspect of every human being. You are, we are ourselves 70-60% water to start with, and it goes through every part uh, of uh, the natural world and every part of society. So my idea was that if I do research on water, and how it follow the water through every every aspect you can think about then i will learn a lot about how things work in nature and society and then climate of course is one of the aspects that is changing and is changing water conditions around us so then water climate is is something you know the, the interplay between them is something you really do need to understand to understand how climate change will affect us and our lives like droughts floods uh, fires all of these aspects that which is how we feel and experience climate change to large degree has to do with water and what changes with water conditions around us So in a way, I'm I'm following the motto of NASA when they look for life in space, uh, follow the water. And that's why I do to understand the conditions of life here on Earth. With no further ado, let's uh, jump into today's topic. Uh, what does science communication mean to you? What do you say, Gia? Well, that it, it means lots of things. Uh, it communicating what you do to um, with, um, of course, including your fellow scientists, but scientists from other disciplines, actors in society that are specifically relevant for what you do, but also the general public. And I think the most important of all is uh, education. So research close education so that you make sure you communicate your research continuously also in the education. From from which degree of education? Do you mean from like from the beginning or? Well, I when I said this now, I meant universe higher education. So that, but uh, ab- absolutely to communicate with uh, different levels of education also. Uh, but that is more like one-time performances, but the actual education, higher education, I think it's the most important and uh, long-lasting and impacting (laughs) way to communicate your research. That's why it's so important. I called it uh, research close education, that it's that they are not separate. They are, in fact, communicating a lot. (laughs) And what do you say, Will? What do you put in the words science communication? I think like yeah, it's it's really quite a difficult 
idea in a way because the notion of science can be defined in countless ways. There's different epistemologies, different ontologies, different knowledge traditions, different ways to approach science. And so that diversity of the way in which we think and know and communicate what we know, you know, is quite complex. And there's academic disciplines, but there's huge debates within disciplines and within fields. And there's also sometimes fields have to talk to each other. And so there's that interdisciplinary sort of approach. And so science is complex. It's, it's not an easy sort of, sort of big field to be in. But then communication is also complex. There's not one way to communicate. You know, in academic spaces, I think academics are generally pretty good at writing academic texts because that is who we normally communicate to. We normally communicate to our, our peers in our maybe small little field. Sometimes we might extend that field to cross and interdisciplinary spaces. But we also communicate to government agencies. We communicate to organizations. We communicate to sort of thinking about pedagogically. We might make textbooks. We might make um, lesson plans. We communicate sometimes to the general public. But now we're moving away from sort of that academic writing when you're thinking about a public audience and how do you communicate certain scientific ideas to people that don't share the same language. And that becomes really, really challenging. And you sometimes have to move beyond the written word. You have to move into audio, like we're doing now, maybe in film, like David Attenborough, who does all of the work on uh, planet Earth and all these amazing documentaries. And he's just absolutely changed the way publics see nature. And he's a journalist, but has a you know strong foundation in science. His, his communication is scientifically informed. Um, but you probably can stretch it all the way to artistic representation and other modes of, of presentation that help express really difficult ideas that are based in research, based in these diverse knowledge traditions, and share them with the world in diverse ways. And I think, to me, science communication encompasses all of that. And so it's a really in a sense, hodgepodge of different ways of, of, of expressing really difficult ideas. Will, let's dig into academic podcasting. You've done nearly 280 episodes uh, of Fresh Ed since 2015. Uh, what was your initial motive to start the Fresh Ed podcast? <laughs> it's, it's a really... It's, it's funny to sort of think about the origins because there was sort of a few different things that happened. I, I was a post, I got a postdoctoral fellowship in Japan, moved to a country I didn't really know anybody, wanted to keep my network going. So on the one hand, it was a way, an excuse to reach out to people, to keep talking to them, even if I was living in a place that seemed very far away from everybody that I had known up to that point. You know, on the one hand, that was sort of part of it. Another part of it was that I was working with an academic society. Academic society typically met once a year, and we wanted to figure out ways to sort of keep the conversation going over the year between conferences, rather than waiting till the next conference to hear about all this great research. 
And so sort of out of those two ideas, decided we decided to sort of create a podcast and to experiment, to see what was happening with this space. You know, podcasts at that point were quite popular in 2015. It wasn't as if it was brand new. Um, many people listened to podcasts. The iPhone was quite ubiquitous at this point. Um, but I didn't hear many podcasts in the field of education, which is where I'm based. And so we decided to start it and just try. And of course, in the beginning, I basically did everything. I did the interviews. I did the editing. I did the promotion. Um, and slowly but surely, it became seen as valuable by outsiders. That was sort of the most amazing thing for me. It was from the moment that I was just doing it for myself to, to having hearing someone tell me, wow, this is actually valuable for someone else. Like I'm using this in my course or I found an article by listening to your podcast. And then that's when things really started changing and it just grew from there. And it then got funding and became an organization and more people wanted to participate and work on it. And now, like I said, it is it is a pretty large organization putting out weekly podcasts. So uh, the idea from the beginning was not to be this uh, like bridge between science and uh, like the general public in, in any way, more like scientists to scientists. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, I wish it was about this idea of, uh, you know, communicating ideas to a general public, but it wasn't. It was really about a way for scientists to stay together and stay connected and share ideas um, to, you know, in the field of education, a lot of there's a lot of practitioners and practitioners have a very hard time keeping up to date with scientific journals. They just can't read all those journal articles like academics who were, were paid to do this. So podcasting actually becomes really valuable for practitioners to sort of stay up to date with recent ideas. And so in a way, it was really about how do you give space to academics to talk about their ideas, which maybe actually might even make their ideas a bit more accessible than sort of jargon-filled academic texts and sort of get behind the pages um, that a lot of students sometimes get a bit intimidated by. And so... That was really what we wanted to do. I think we've sort of reached a little bit more of a public audience these days, but I still think our main audience is is an academic student audience that are trying to get a better handle on ideas and having people talk about them sometimes is just an easier entry point into understanding what the bigger idea is, what's the point, what's the significance of whatever study it is. Getting behind the pages, like Will said, is key also for researchers like Gia. She's involved in several research projects looking at climate change and more specifically water security in Sweden. This research shows that access to clean water could be a problem. But how do you communicate that to the general public that might not yet be affected? First of all, I would say it's not uh, just my research or anybody's research. Reality shows that it can be a problem because we have had severe droughts 
severe floods, severe water quality problems with whole communities shut out of water like Östersund, Skellefteå, uh, relatively recently due to cryptosporidium outbreaks. And uh, we have had uh, parts of Stockholm and parts of Oslo, the whole city uh, shut. So... I think it's reality that shows that. <laughs> we have wildfires that very large degree depend not just on what temperature you have, but how much water is there when you have uh, some heat waves. And uh, so all of these things are aspects of water. So water is not just, you know, turning on your tap and then what comes out is clean enough most of the time it is and most of the time here in Sweden it has sufficient pressure so you can do your whatever you need to do but even here it's not for sure that yeah, it will yeah. always be like that that's just the feeling you know that it's there is feeling, always absolutely. water in the tap yeah. but how do you like communicate this to the general public mm-hmm. um, that it's actually not uh, secure. I think uh, a lot of people in the general public have already experienced this reality. People living by the coast have experienced that their wells maybe have started to have salt water. They need to do something about it. And um, people have experienced the floods. But you kind of sometimes, if you live in that area, you see it maybe as a one-time issue, or yeah. if you read about it like it happened in Gävle or something, mm. um, not everyone, at least not myself, is like connecting the dots always and, no. and see and the I, bigger problem. That's exactly that. Uh, people are not connecting the dots. They, Because water is everywhere and uh, you don't experience drought as a problem. But, of course, we have huge investments in Sweden in drainage networks because we often have too much water. And that's also a problem. (laughs) The problem that's coming up now is we are going going to have more frequent occasions of too much as well as more frequent occasions of too little. So now we need double investment, both strengthening the the drainage network and uh, preparing for drought situations, so irrigation. And and so there's a lot of money involved. So even if the general public uh, hasn't connected dots, industry has or uh, agricultural sector has, forestry sector has, and so on. And the hydropower sector has because drought is also something relative. It's not, you know, not being able to water your lawn. If you're producing hydropower, just a little less water than you had anticipated or planned for uh, will cost you lots of money and can cause electricity shortages. And and so so I think uh, various sectors know And that was part of this project I told you about that became clear that they know and they worry about it. And then the general public, uh, of course, um, you reach uh, the public and discuss these things uh, in uh, popular presentations and articles. And uh, and my experience is uh, that there is lots of interest in this and people are very much interested and willing to 
learn and understand. But it's uh, uh, the problem is this: uh, we often fragment water. Uh, you know, it's either the water in the tap, or the water for irrigation, or it's water quality, or it's water quantity, and then there is water for ecosystems. That's somebody else who deals with that, and and that's yeah. what you see in the media. You see, yeah. kind of, it's you need an angle. It's this yes. or it's that. Exactly. That's the difficult part. If if you don't mind, I mean, yeah. it's such a fascinating story because it, it sort of shows, you know, how do you make social change with research? Yeah. And it's you know we have knowledge this is something that we're pretty good at in the academic space we produce knowledge and we we share knowledge with the world now does knowledge actually change behavior not necessarily right the dots aren't connected and i think one of the key things and you kept coming you kept referring to different feelings people you said the forestry sector worries about something about a piece of knowledge right and it's that perception that really pushes people into action and maybe certain industries and sectors get to it first because they have a perception that might impact their bottom line or might impact whatever some interest they have and then therefore they change their behavior which is sort of what the science wants and the question is how do you do that with the public right how do you do it with people that are just turning on the tap how do you change their perceptions not just by giving more and more knowledge because that you know there's plenty of knowledge and we need knowledge and you know not to not not downplaying knowledge we definitely need knowledge but there is this issue of perception how do we change perceptions on certain ideas that will then sort of engender some sort of behavioral change and i think that's where the science communication and the best science communication comes in it plays with issues around emotions and affect things like being worried um or being amazed and you know inspired whatever it is there has to be some sort of emotional attachment to some of these ideas um and so that therefore makes it how we present this knowledge is so important to think through you said two things the perception and and i have understood through all this In fact, I I now want to do research on people's perception because of of these types of problems because they're still I've understood more and more but not in a systematic way and I really think I need to we need to understand it. How mm-hmm. do people perceive these connections and and this system that they see some parts of but mm-hmm. not the whole. And then storytelling. Uh, you said from the beginning well you know we are used to writing our papers in a certain way and i always you know have thought uh, as dry as possible and as free from emotion as possible and to be in the academic but that's completely different the from how you need to communicate with um well other even other scientists mm. uh in other science communities which we have to do a lot mm. you have to find the right story to tell and uh, and uh, now having understood this storytelling from first you know oh no we are just going to write down the mathematics and that's it then everybody can understand yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now i i have fully understood that even in the science papers i need to tell a story mm-hmm. um 
It's like what you do, Will, uh, with your podcasts, uh, creating a space where academics talk about uh, things like that. And it's not in a paper or an article. It's more of a discussion. It's a conversation. I totally agree. I mean, I think storytelling and conversations are hugely important when it comes to communicating ideas and creating per new perceptions of topics that might seem dull or someone that might not think about these topics too much, certainly. But I actually think, I mean, in terms of podcasting itself, you know, what we're doing here, this interview is, you know, these are fantastic educational spaces. There's all sorts of other types of podcasts as well that I think are even better at getting at storytelling. It's what I would call narrative-based podcasting, where you it's uh, maybe it's more journalistic, but you can even get a bit more artistic and experimental with what sound can evoke, what emotions sound can evoke. You know, when you're talking about water, Gia, I'm thinking of all the sounds that water has, right? I mean, that would make a fantastic podcast, right? If you could go and record all the different sounds of when there's too much water or too little water or a tap that turns on and then drips out when you actually want it to, you know, pour out. And all of that sound actually can help us in the stories we're trying to tell. But we have to approach what we're doing in a slightly different way. And I think, you know, it's not mathematical equations only. It's sort of thinking about the audience with whom we're communicating and that's also part of science communication. It's really knowing your audience. And I think this is, you know, I always tell my students, you know, who are you writing this for? Think about that. If you know who you're writing it for, then you can sort of design how you write. And, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher. And so issues of subjectivity are very common in, in you know, in, in the tradition of, of doing interviews and observations and ethnographic research that I do. And a lot of people, there's a big tradition that sort of would say you need to minimize your subjectivity to make sure that you can portray reality in an objective way. And I actually disagree. I think it's impossible to take the subjectivity out, particularly in the qualitative research. And there's, I think there's arguments also for the mathematics. You can sort of you know, hide behind really nice fancy equations, but I think there's still subjectivity in there. And so a better way perhaps to, you know, embrace science is to say we are being subjective. What does that allow us to do? And I think podcasting and new forms of, you know, media like vi movies and videos and TikTok videos and who knows what else, it, it, uh, it opens the door to expressing subjectivity in new ways that I think can help tell the story and still create valid science. I don't think there's going to be a question of, you know, this isn't valid because you started started with a personal story to sort of get the the other researchers for whom you're writing to really begin to understand what it is that you're you're talking about and why it's important and then you can get into some of the sort of more methodological issues that at at stake. But I I really think it's sort of embracing subjectivity is is hugely important in this process. The world is so complex, so we absolutely start from a subjective start point when we are putting up the system we try to quantify. And in my own research, I have 
which is, has been heavily mathematical, but I, I now put all that in appendix mm. and tell the story in the main text so that people yeah. can understand it and then they can go and look at the... It's a great yeah, idea. Yeah, I think mm. so. This is a question for both of you. Uh, what challenges do you see now or in the future for uh, communicating science? Is it not having time Uh, enough resources or outlets or ideas? Uh, Gia, you could go first well, on this one. I think the ideas is the least problem. Uh, time is the biggest problem. And not time, our time, uh, who, you know, do the research and are to communicate it, but also people's time in, you know, practitioners and people out there, they, they don't have the time. You mentioned that they don't have the time to read the scientific papers, of course, mm. but they also have very little time to, to you know, engage in more popular communication mm. of, of science uh, and be part of these projects we are talking about, the collaborative and... Uh, So getting resources to have this kind of, uh, I could say, co-creative research, so to have different people, not just the researcher, but actors in society that for which the research is relevant to be part of these projects so that they're really, so that funding is available. But there was also one other thing you, you mentioned, Will, that I think is very important. The question is how meriting is that in our university system? And to be honest, in my experience so far, not at all. So uh, if you're thinking of your career as a young researcher, I mean, I can do this because I don't care anymore. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> no, but you know. But if you're a young researcher, you need to get the merits uh, to advance and get a position. And how are you going to spend your time on this when it's not acknowledged? It's not uh, rewarded. <laughs> it's not part of the um, position um, Uh, meriting uh, system that we have. Uh, so we don't get any more faculty funding because we do lots of communication. Nothing. So if you're doing a, like David Attenborough that you go on TV, that doesn't mean you get like any merits. Any. No. Uh, <laughs> Hopefully you will get paid for doing <laughs> that. <laughs> But it uh, doesn't mean anything for your mm. academic academic career, I would say. But maybe UCL is different. <laughs> I don't want to bring UCL into it, but I, I mean I think I think you're right that there there is a problem with how we merit what academics do. And I would say a lot of academics do things far beyond what is merited. And so there's a fundamental problem with what we think of as a successful academic and what gets counted and what doesn't. So I think that definitely needs to change not only about science communication, but about all the other fabulous things that academics do do that aren't counted as part of their sort of contribution to the university. The other things, though, about, you know, sort of some of the big issues that we're going to have to overcome going forward. I think, Gia, you mentioned this really important issue about, you know, you're a trained scientist and you now have to communicate publicly about this science and that's not what you were trained in. And so there is this big problem of how do you pair 
scientists with expert communicators? How do you do it? And there's very few organizations that I know of that are doing this. I actually had the privilege of meeting one in London called Opening Knowledge Across Research and Entertainment. And they've actually invited me to join their advisory board. And I'm thrilled to, to be part of the, the group. And they have basically put together a collection of people that have all these different skills in entertainment and a collection of people that have all these skills in universities and knowledge production. And they're trying to bring those communities together, create a nexus that can work together. And they don't really know what collaborations will come out of it. But if you just put those people in sort of shared spaces, the hope is that something can come out of that. You can meet people who know how to make that movie or that documentary or can help make a podcast for you. So I think more organizations, more collaborative spaces to bring people together across these very different sectors. It's not simply cross-disciplinary. It's like bringing in people that have totally different skills in communication with scientists. So I think more of that needs to happen. The other big issue is outlets. So not everyone can be David Attenborough. Not everyone can go on the BBC and make Netflix TV shows that get viewed all around the world. That's just not possible. And even look at David Attenborough. It took him a lifetime until he became global, globally famous. He was very famous for a long time in the UK, but his global popularity came when he was probably in his 70s or 80s. So, you know, I, I don't think even the best science communi- communicators, you know, would not necessarily reach that global appeal like David Attenborough. And so I think we need to think about outlets and platforms that are sort of below that sort of global elite communicator. And I think those platforms don't currently exist. And the reason they don't exist is a few reasons. And I I won't take too long. I mean, first is that a lot of research grants now that ask people to come up with sort of new outputs, creative outputs, non-traditional outputs, non-academic texts, usually it's something along the lines of we'll create a website, we'll do a podcast, we'll create a video, and we'll upload it to the website. But then no one goes to the website because no one knows the website exists, right? And so maybe the researchers will share it with a few people and maybe, you know, it gets 100, 200 views, which might sound good, but it's really a waste of resources to to do that. And so imagine if there was a, a, a platform that allowed all different scientists to post their content And that resource or that platform was popular with a global audience. Now, all of a sudden, you can really change how many people are viewing or listening or experiencing these new ways of science communication. And so I think there needs to be a lot of work in how do we create a trusted platform that can actually share this knowledge with a global audience. Science communication is a large topic uh, that has a lot of potential. Um, and we only scratched the surface here today. Uh, but I at least have learned a lot, and I hope you have too. So thank you so much for joining me here today, Will, Bram, and Gia Destoni. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cecilia. We have learned a lot. I have learned a lot. Me too. Me too. I'm ready to go listen to some water. <laughs> 
a transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that the opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you like what you have heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fati Aktas, Obafemi Ogunleye, Dian Yang, Annabella Afra Boateng, Anja Lin, Phyllis Chi Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the OSF, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Sachdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash donate. Thank you for listening. I am Cecilia Burman and it was a pleasure to host Fresh Ed this week. <laughs>